Hey, Earl, here's some Swiss cheese and some bullets. Uh, thanks, Walter. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 159, Back to Cole's Choice. What are we talking about today? We are talking about Tremors from 1990, directed by Ron Underwood and starring Fred Ward, Kevin Bacon, Finn Carter, Victor Wong, Reba McIntyre, Michael Gross, and Bobby Jacoby. It is about the residents of a small town called Perfection, Nevada, who encounter a series of mysterious deaths and are then forced to fight for survival against the killer sandworms that are responsible. Now, before we get to the movie proper, let's talk a little bit about the life cycle of one of our favorite subgenres, creature features. I, it's safe to say that I think you love these as much as I do. Oh my gosh, yes, forever. Well, it seems like since talkies began, about every 20 years, give or take, we would see a new permutation of this. The Universal Monsters are obviously the bedrock for this. And those are movies that we still come back to. We actually just watched that whole box set, had it on a loop on this long weekend trip that we took and we'll be talking about on the Patreon soon. But for a certain generation of monster kids, those movies are eternal. But then in the 50s, 20 years later or so, what do we have that comes in and changes the game? We've got the Atomic Age, which you know I love. And one of my first introductions to that section of the subgenre was through The Thing from Another World, which we covered way back in episode nine. So when I think about the Atomic Age, I think about basically two major themes and how those manifested into the creatures. So on the one hand, you have the paranoia, sometimes misplaced, but not always, of what science was getting up to without us knowing about it. Then on the other hand, you have more of the speculative side of where our scientific breakthroughs might actually take us and what we might bring back from them. Yeah, so you have mutations, science gone horribly wrong, UFOs start to appear prominently. You mentioned the thing from another world that's a huge favorite. Them! Exclamation point. That's another great one. Godzilla, obviously, is one of the big ones. And then a personal favorite, the Quatermass Experiment, is one of mine. I love that movie. Then moving on 20 years, we have this cycle that's basically Nature Strikes Back in the 70s. Jaws is obviously the big one, but we've got Grizzly, Frogs, Night of the Lepus, Long Weekend, which is a favorite of ours. Day of the Animals, Kingdom of the Spiders. And then you know that I like the natural disaster part of that stuff when the disasters are so huge that they become the monsters. Your earthquakes, your giant tidal wave in the Poseidon Adventure, for example, things like that. 
I don't know if you feel the same, but I am always fascinated by how the zeitgeist seems to form around some of these things, how we can look back at these cycles and see, oh yeah, we had a widespread cultural anxiety about this particular thing, and it bubbled up in our horror movies. With the Universal Monsters, we were between world wars, obviously, and we clearly had distrust of old world European interlopers and what terrors, violence, and abominations they might bring with them. In some cases, in fact, it's just downright xenophobic. What about in the 50s? How do you see those things manifesting themselves? Well, like you mentioned with something like Godzilla, or let's say their giant killer shrews about, which the <laughs> movies told us were happening, these monsters were created by science from the natural world. These pesky scientists had this unlimited power and no morality checks. And it's us poor citizens bearing the brunt of this atomic wrath. Basically two decades of they were too busy asking if they could to ask if they should. Yeah, what was Werner von Braun really up to <laughs> in those labs? And as you mentioned, you've got that whole alien UFO side. There's something I love called X the Unknown. Men can travel through space and will soon be able to visit other planets, but we will not come through the process unscathed. So there's this paranoia that there's an infection out there and it is waiting to turn us into creatures we no longer recognize. That's pod people or communists. <laughs> We're going to become those if we don't pay enough attention. So don't go to sleep and keep watching the skies. Yeah, Roswell was in 1947. So that's beginning to make its way into the daily conversation a little bit there. But I think one thing that you didn't address there is just the everyday fear of nuclear annihilation. If you're watching these test explosions on television and then you're going to school and being told, yeah, just put your hands over your head and duck for cover under your desk, you had to be terrified 24 hours a day. I think that's true. And you see the outlet in William Castle films of the late 50s and 60s. I tend to think of that as being a product of the 80s as well because maybe duck and cover seemed like okay possibly we can get away with this but by the 80s we thought there's no way and then moving ahead from the 50s to the 70s i think in the 70s there was a growing eco awareness obviously and we were turning our collective attention to being better stewards of the planet but just like those 50s science fiction films perhaps too late and so as nature often does it will implement its own plan and its own cycle to get rid of us, the thing that's causing the problem, and it will revert back to the way it was before we were even here. But bringing us up to Tremors, what do you see as the through line in this wave of 90s creature features? Do they fit under one tidy umbrella, the same as some of those previous examples? Is there anything in them that indicates a larger cultural fear at work? I think they are the natural conclusion to the 50s and the 70s. Like we were talking about that other thread in the 70s where the natural disasters are so large that they become the monsters. Well, the 90s is just bigger and louder and giganticer. You've got Twister and Dante's Peak and Volcano, those sorts of films where everything was just bigger and crazier. So it's all that knowledge, but it's taken to 11. 
And also, I think the 90s were the closest throwback to the 50s, because it seems like we have even more terrible knowledge of how collectively we've altered the world so much that we are the true monsters. And that leads me to what I think the biggest through line is. It's that cynicism mixed with humor. So a lot of this was totally tongue in cheek. And I'm going to give you some great examples. Anaconda, Deep Blue Sea, Lake Placid, Congo, The Relic, which I know you're a big fan of. And then, unfortunately, the first Godzilla reboot. A couple that I loved, Bats, Eight-Legged Freaks, along with Lake Placid, like I mentioned. They were horror comedies, and I saw every single one of them. And I look at Tremors as sort of kicking that off. And I think it also reignited in me my love of creature features. I think they were designed to have something for everybody to laugh at. And the science part was never taken too seriously, which marks a big change from the 50s and the 70s. You've got more citizens in these films, more kind of law enforcement. And there's much less battling against the state or the military industrial complex. And women take a much larger role here. There's one outlier I want to mention because we watched it recently and we really enjoyed it again. And that was the remake of The Blob because it goes back to that original source material. And so the state and science are the real bad guys. I think the thing I see sort of lines up with that thing you're saying about cynicism and kind of broadens it a little bit. The through line that I find is I think that all these films from that time period, or at least quite a few of them, they share an awareness of movies that those previous examples didn't have. This is the first wave of creature features that demonstrates more of a sophistication on both the part of the creators and the audience. Great point. And I mean that they both have the benefit of having seen all these things that came before. They weren't full-on meta the way Scream was, for example, a few years later. But like you say, they have a sense of humor, and they did occasionally wink at the audience. There was a humor built upon understanding how these films work. There was a self-reflexive quality that way. And as far as shared anxieties, that part of it, I think a lot of it has to do with facing threats alone. Do you remember that book, Bowling Alone, by Robert Putnam? I don't. It probably sticks in my mind because it's one of those that always shows up in the sociology section. When I was working at Half Price Books, I handled it a million times along with things like Amusing Ourselves to Death or Nickel and Dimed, those two big sociology titles that constantly churn through used bookstore shelves. But anyway, that book came out in the year 2000, right as all of this was wrapping up. And it was actually an expansion of the earlier essay he wrote in 1995. And it summed up a phenomenon that had started years before, but really crystallized in the 90s, I think. His argument was that all of the face-to-face -face social interaction that we had previously based our education and edification on was in steep decline. And this was undermining our communities and our culture through lack of regular civil engagement. And isolation was a major component of a lot of the 90s creature features. And if not that, then they might be populated with odd loners. You can get more isolated, for example, from the culture at large than Deep Blue Sea. You are completely set apart from the surface world. Jurassic Park had its own island. Tremors, though, may be the most interesting take on this, at least to me, because it wasn't a case that the situation demanded isolation like those other two examples, but in this case, the isolation is a choice that the characters have made. Which leads us to the film, 
starting with the setting. Is it safe to say, do you think, that nothing good ever happens in the desert? You sure said something there, partner. <laughs> and even if it did, absolutely nothing good happens in Nevada. Just Google Finn Carter 2019. It's pretty sad where she is now, but Nevada plays a role in it. It is, though, I think, a smart choice for generating tension because it's one of those things where our cumulative movie-going experience has set us up for this making us at least subconsciously uncomfortable. Because I don't know if you're the same, but I cannot think of a movie set in the desert where everything is free and easy and works out for everyone with minimal stress. Maybe that laugh-a-minute dune or those kooky nuts in The Hills Have Eyes. <laughs> I don't know about you and our listeners, but it means something to me because I remember the first time driving through, I believe it was Utah, and realizing, oh, that sign just said no gas for another 150 miles. So if you didn't fill up, you are out of luck. Now that you mention it, the closest I have ever come to death was the time that I almost drowned in a motel pool in Yuma, Arizona when I was about nine years old. Oh my goodness. My cousin pulled me out and saved my life. So again, top flight cousining on the Rolaine side. <laughs> Did they also throw you in too? No, I overestimated my ability. There's a huge long story to this. I had tubes in my ears when I was very small, so I never got to learn to swim around the same time as all of my contemporaries. Ah, got it. And I bit off more than I could chew. Mm, okay, well, I'm glad that you're okay now. Well, the casting, I have to say, is as spot on as the setting. First and foremost, I have always liked Fred Ward. He was born in California, but I always think of him as an honorary Okie. He's got that flinty exterior, but that self-effacing sense of humor that reminds me a lot of a bunch of people that I grew up around. Probably some people that were on that Yuma, Arizona trip, in fact. And if we're talking Okie credibility, Reba freaking McIntyre. I love her in this. And I will say, let me tell you, that accent is not fake, unlike Kevin Bacon's. <laughs> Definitely. Reba is so great. Shout out to Victor Wong, who makes everything better. Also, he had such an interesting life, which I'm only just learning about. Very few people can do more with a single raised eyebrow than Victor Wong. So true. I always personally really like Charlotte Stewart, who plays Nancy. Maybe it's because of the associations to Little House. But in general, it just seems like everyone has been there long enough to know each other inside and out and know how to coexist together. Also, shout out to Richard Marcus as Nestor, who looks like Robocop made a Pinocchio-like wish to become a real boy. <laughs> He's not in it for too long. But everybody's just really well-placed here, except for uh, Melvin. Oh, believe me, we're going to get to Melvin. But that thing you were saying, I think you really make a great point. One of the great things this movie achieves is not just casting for character, but casting for chemistry. They are generally solid, decently drawn characters on their own, but their real strengths actually come to bloom when you see their interactions. Val and Earl are fine on their own, but even better together. Reba and Michael Gross, they're fun to watch, specifically because of how supportive and complementary those characters are to each other. I really appreciate that even though they're preppers and gun nuts, they're not insane jerks. And I also really appreciate that we understand why Val and Earl haven't completely packed up. 
It's just not easy to cut those ties, and everyone does rely on each other to at least some extent. I really like, too, that beyond the people, the community is a character, and these spaces feel totally lived in, and I think that goes a long way to establishing character as well. So nobody is an island, even in this small place. We see that right away with the character of Edgar. So it's horror overall, but I think it succeeds a great deal because of how deftly they mix in elements from other genres. You've got the musical overlay that is straight up 80s buddy comedy shorthand. If there wasn't any dialogue in those scenes and you just listen to the musical stings, I think it conjures up everything from 48 hours to midnight run. So we have that musical encouragement to understand Val and Earl's relationship a certain way. And then obviously it just makes it doubly effective that their easy familiarity with each other is fun and clearly affectionate and not adversarial. Then you have the obvious Western touches too, especially with these different strains of rugged individualism. The way they use these bits and pieces, did it feel seamless to you? Did it take you out of the movie at any point? Not at all, because I think it's all done with a wink and a smile, so it just seems to work. And I appreciate that they decided that Earl and Val are not related, which would have made that dynamic totally different, so it seems to just fit in with the rest of what was going on film-wise. It means essentially that everyone has made a choice to be here and together. And as we're kind of taking it apart and looking at it this way, I do want to stress the most important part about it is that it all adds up to fun is the big thing. It's an amusement park ride. And we've been on kind of a little miniature kick lately of more broad summertime fun time stuff. We are doing this. We're doing nine to five for the Patreon coming up soon. We're going to see Jurassic Park at the drive-in next week. Now, if you've listened to the show fairly regularly, you probably have gleaned that it's always been kind of tough for me to do that sort of thing for any sustained period of time. Since you're on the outside of this thing, kind of going along this ride with me, have I gotten better about that over the last several years? Can you tell? Gosh, I'm not sure that I've evaluated you necessarily, but it does seem like maybe there's a slight mellowing happening. Yeah, I know I get irritable if it's a steady diet of nothing but that. I think maybe that's putting it mildly. Yeah, because then I feel like maybe you just want to put on your I'm with stupid shirt that <laughs> is always pointing at me. But no, but we're also doing something which I think bridges those two areas, which is last drive in with Joe Bob. It blends some analysis and interesting, crazy, cutting edge weirdness with fun. Does that make a difference for you? That makes a huge difference. Anytime I can get some insight or, say, genre scholarship out of it, it helps me process that stuff a whole lot better. So does that mean we need to recalibrate soon with some 59-hour documentary with no dialogue Actually, and one image? I'm already nipping it in the bud. I just watched The Savage Eye last night to kind of balance myself out a little bit, and that is some pretty bleak and pretty interesting experimental stuff for the time period. Okay. I thought you were going to say you watched The Severed Arm again, but <laughs> The Savage Eye will work. And also, to its credit... Tremors isn't all like that either. I think about the ways that this transcends that. There's a classic septic tank gag, for instance, and you know what's going to happen before it even happens. And Val and Earl, I think it's indicative of their arrested state that even potentially fatal decisions are made by the child's game of rock, paper, scissors. 
and you can just chalk up how their lives go to dumb luck. Or is it? Is there an intelligence or a strategy at play in those? Because I bet I can beat you right now at rock, paper, scissors. I have no doubt because you're looking at me in a super weird way like you can see into my soul. Let's do it though. One, two, three, shoot. Is that? Okay. One, two, three, shoot. Okay. 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 One, two, three, shoot. <laughs> you son of a bitch. <laughs> scissors beats paper. <laughs> okay. But all of those things put together, getting back to this, it does make me think in these instances about bigger questions. For example, I think something that you might be thinking about in terms of them not being related, if it weren't for each other, would the other one have left here a long time ago? No. Okay. Yeah, Podcast done. over. Bye-bye. <laughs> you don't think so? No, I don't. I don't think that singularly they have the wherewithal to necessarily do it. They need each other to move forward, but also stay in the same place. And I think as soon as Val goes on that date in the end, he'll come back and Earl will still be there. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think they have enough understanding to realize even what's over the horizon may not be so great. And they've got it good enough where they are. They don't have to necessarily aspire to the stars, for example. I kind of like that the stakes, at least in their life, outside of the life or death situation, are sort of low stakes. For example, the scientist is the seismologist student. I mean, that's not super crazy and award-winning. Everything's just sort of there at the level. Do you know what I mean? That not everybody has to break out of a small town. Right. It's that same thing that reincarnation, not everyone was a duke or a duchess or a general in the Civil War. Some people just made donuts. Some people carried firewood. Not everyone is a superstar, and that's totally cool. But you bring up the seismologist, Finn Carter. Another point in its favor, I think, the way they introduce her character, the way it's written and the way she's responded to, she's introduced as pointedly unglamorous, I would say. And that is to be in direct contradiction to the list of qualities that Kevin Bacon was just naming about his dream woman. And the other characters actually listen to the scientist in this point and act on her suggestions immediately. It's unlike a lot of the 50s and 70s variations on this character in that way. And now I said unglamorous. I don't mean that to be frumpy or insulting or anything because they also do this thing where they weren't exactly de-emphasizing her sexuality because there's an instance of her escaping from the worms that involves taking her pants off. They don't linger on that, and they get her dressed again pretty quickly right after that. But what do you make of that sequence? I was actually thinking about you during that bit because she's wearing white granny underwear. <laughs> and I also felt like that was totally on purpose and completely realistic to her character. So it's not like she has to take her pants off and suddenly it's the librarian taking their glasses off or whatever. It's none of that dumb stuff. It's, yeah, what I'm wearing under here with my big socks that's the reality. And everything is done on purpose. She doesn't protest about her pants. Yes, no, that is the exact right thing that she has to do to stay alive. And I also like that they listen to her and she's just as willing to listen right back to them. So it's all of this buddy community work happening. They have the scientific expertise and then they have the experiential expertise. And everything has its place. 
I think there may be the tiniest element of also using that to add some spark to the romantic subplot between her and Kevin Bacon. Because if we are in a life or death situation, you and I and a bunch of other people out in the middle of nowhere, and I get to see you running around in your underwear, maybe I'm paying a little more attention to you this time. True. I mean, if I get my pants off and it's life or death, I mean, there's only one way this party needs to go. Which, though, brings me to the question, do you feel like this romance subplot is even necessary? Probably not, but it gives it a slightly different dimension. And I think it also keeps the stakes totally relatable and real. Because they're just going to go meet in the next town over. She's there for several more years to do her coursework. So it's not like, oh, fly off with me to Hollywood or something like that. It's just this, we're going to go out on a date. I do like that point you made earlier, though, about how it could potentially affect the dynamic of Val and Earl's relationship. It leaves Fred Ward open for someone to come along and scoop him up like me. Well, moving the exact opposite direction of romance, let's get back to this isolation thing as a theme. There's an element of avoiding government, or really any, interference in their lives that prompted all of these people to go to this place. I have to admit, the isolation thing is not something that generates anxiety in me whatsoever. That's not a part of this that I respond to. Population 35 sounds pretty ideal to me. We've talked about this before. We've lived in this house for eight years now, and this is a typical suburban neighborhood in terms of population density and proximity to everyone, and I still don't know the name of a single neighbor. Does the isolation thing generate any anxiety in you? Is it a good theme for a horror film for you? I think it's really effective because the stakes for that are established right away with the death of Edgar, You cannot survive without food and water. And so the more they get isolated from those two things by the monsters, we understand that this is incredibly important and terrifying. And really, I just like the play on words. I like that something very bad has come to perfection. And it's all because of this blasting and the digging, which has to mean expansion and improvement and progress, right? So, do you think the Graboids would have remained underground without these disturbances? No, probably not. That is one of those things, like you were saying, progress bringing these problems upon ourselves. But you lead me to one of the things that I do like about this, and that is we get our first visual indication that something is wrong. We get the worm's eye view, finally, which is always fun. The creature reveal, they dole it out a little bit at a time, and the first way we get it is this method that I love that basically is this Sam Raimi, Barry Sonnenfeld, low to the ground camera moving super fast. It's always a fun trick. Along with the humor, that must be why I think about this as Raising Arizona meets Creature (laughs) Feature, because Sonnenfeld did Raising Arizona. I just really love that stuff at Creature level. It totally puts us in the mood. And then flipping it to look at the other part of the cinematography that I love, there's always such a perfect blend, when it's not from the monster's point of view, of earth and sky. I can see why people would want to go here and stay here forever. It's beautiful. Before we move away from cinematography, I love actually all of the overhead work. There's quite a bit of it, and it's really effective, and it's not so much that you get sick of it, but it gives you a sense of scope and scale, which I think is really cool. We get a little bit of that with Edgar, in fact. You've mentioned his death a couple of times. I love the way 
this works. Him up on the tower as a harbinger. I really like this twist on the old trope of if we knew then what we know now, because it's so perplexing and inexplicable in the moment, but it makes perfect sense in retrospect. When they discover him, though, even if they ask why and how, they couldn't possibly imagine the right answer. And then later when a character says that there's a higher force at work here, it makes me laugh a little bit. It's a funny joke when I think of it in that context. It's a little yes and no. And I have to say, even when they're taking these slight pauses to start to think about what is this, what's happening, the film always has such great momentum. These are people of action. And another of the great successes of the film is how easily identifiable these characters all are with only minimal exposure to them. You mentioned this earlier. It's not laziness. It's really efficient writing. One of the elements that I saw when you talk about that scene when they first gather at the general store, before we even go inside, there's a shot of all of their cars parked along the front. And you get a clear idea of who might be inside based just on that. And that thing I was saying about chemistry earlier, not only do you get a feeling of who they are, but also who they are to each other in just a few strokes as well. I think the real tip-off to how well-written this is is how much we care about their survival. They're not just cannon fodder, with one major exception. Would that be Melvin? <laughs> that would be. Okay, forever, I thought Melvin was Walter's son until I actually read the credits and realized all the characters have different last names. So who is this teenager and who the heck does he belong to? But anyway, I also think the shorthand of the setting does quite a bit of the work for the characters as well, because if you choose to live where you do and also have a profession, I think at least we believe we understand something about you. I mean, you and I know artists who go to live in the desert. We know odd jobbers. We know people who want to live off the grid. And what I like most is that these people aren't trying to bend nature to fit their will. They want to exist within it. And one more thing again about the representation of science with Rhonda. Because she is a grad student, we know she's not the cause of any of this, which I think is an important distinction. Everybody's at the same level here. Well, let's talk about one of our favorite scenes in the movie. When this couple is at their campsite, that set piece is great. And I think what you have here, the flip side of this isolation and the self-sufficiency that it requires is that when you need it sometimes, there's no one around to help. 38 miles to Bixby might as well be a thousand. The encroaching sand is frightening when all this begins to happen because of that element of claustrophobia. And then when she passes him that two by four that then just snaps like a twig, we are at least subconsciously aware of how much force that requires. What about the scene sticks out to you? It just scared me so much. The thing that sticks out for me is once the wife is left alone, it's just really sad because if you think about it, she suffocates and that's not super fast. And so it makes me wonder, is this a punishment for building their dream house and making too much noise? I think the element of it that gets me the most occurs later when they discover the buried station wagon those headlights are still on. That is such a spooky touch. Scary, especially in the middle of the day. But there's comedy, too. 
there are great spooky touches, but then there are one or two little things that they throw in our opening scene, that odd detail of Swiss cheese and bullets that makes me laugh every time. (laughs) And it's his delivery, really. And then these things that are usually benign or playful that have taken on this level of dread. I think when everything goes silent and they just hear that pogo stick bouncing, that is such a clever use of that sound. Now, this is very definitely a VHS era cult movie. Word of mouth and video stores were how this found its audience. And I think you were similar in that the video store was my lifeline, especially before I left home and I was living in our small town. And I do love that that's sort of acknowledged in this. You catch a glimpse of a sign in the background indicating that Victor Wong's store does video rentals. Of course it does. And that's true. Even in the middle of nowhere, you need a good video store. Well, that's how my family came to it. I wasn't super aware of this in theaters at the time. I do remember, though, Roger Ebert did a special on some of his favorite actors, and Fred Ward was one of them, so this came up. And we rented it, we all watched it together, and had a great time. I think in that era, it became sort of a comfort movie for a lot of people. It's one of those that I think falls under that category of anytime it's on, you sit down and watch it till the end. It always has been for me. I have always enjoyed it. I've seen it many times. And Kevin Bacon said it's the only film of his that he would absolutely go back to. And I understand why. I still look at it, though, and wonder why it wasn't initially more hugely financially successful. Well, I have also seen in reviews since then that tag of so bad it's good thrown at it. And I couldn't disagree more with that assessment of this. This is not that type of movie. No, it's not. These are all things that people that don't understand genre films say about things. And also, I think a huge component of its cult success is the fact that it's relatively family-friendly. It's scary, but not too scary. You think about the central conceit. It's dangerous to set foot on the ground. This is an hour and a half of The Floor is Lava, which is something everyone can relate to. (laughs) Yep. And I think, like you said earlier... All of us have to have Fred Wards in our life, right? I mean, our uncles, our cousins, our neighbors. He's so relatable. He is such an everyman. Well, how do you like the creature design? What do you think about these graboids? Love them. They feel so organic. I think you can feel the textures of the creatures, and I think you know what they smell like. Beyond the actual design of those... There are dirt and sage wranglers listed in the credits. So that, to me, suggests this top-down approach to making the world seem alive and real. So beyond just the creatures, all that dirt work is my favorite. Yeah, I love the design, too. They have beaks, and they can burrow, and they have similar spiny design features as earthworms to maintain stability. So there's a little science in there, too. They have this Georgia O'Keeffe gone wrong flower of a mouth. It's ugly and gross, which is great. And I really do like the fact, the thing you touched on, that they repeatedly indicate how much it stinks. They are completely repellent in every way. I think about other movie monsters, and there is more often than not at least some element of them that is sleek or admirable in terms of its murderous efficiency, but not here. The physical representation holds zero appeal. It's the intelligence that they exhibit that does that for me, actually. I may be biased, but I assume that these practical effects are going to age way better than their CGI counterparts in the sequels. Technology is not always an improvement. 
Okay, so now the ball is really rolling. Our action is really ramped up. And I think the main question that I have at this point, how is that Jacoby kid still alive? And I don't mean his character. I mean the actual kid. Because surely everyone <laughs> wanted to murder him. All of his brothers were there to protect him, I'm assuming, because there are about 50 Jacobys. There are three, to be accurate. Yeah, two of them are three awful. or 50. Three brothers, I should say. There are two sisters, too, and the sisters are awesome. One of them's in Rad, and one of them's in a great episode of The Rockford Files. Oh, okay. I think I did know that about the sisters as well. Maybe I'm being too harsh on these Jacoby boys, but I will say Scott Jacoby in Bad Ronald is the only Jacoby for me. He was also Michael in The Golden Girls, so I've got a soft spot for him. Now, looking a little bit at influences on this thing, this happened in the 70s, too, with a lot of some of those films that we mentioned earlier, but Jaws is clearly a template here, right? I think so, which leads me to a very important question for you. We've already established that nothing good happens in the desert. So, what's scarier, the desert or the ocean? I'm going to give you a couple of things to think about. Okay. You've got your Jawses, you've got your Megalodons, you've got your giant squids and whatnot out there. Is the desert still scarier than the ocean? This is an easy one. The desert is always going to be worse for me because I have a love of the ocean that I cannot express. I think of the ocean truly as maybe the only thing that inspires awe in me, which transcends fear for me. I feel like if I'm in the ocean doing my thing and a shark or even better, a megalodon gets me, I deserve it. I'm in their house. Yeah, I think it would be an honor to be eaten by a <laughs> megalodon. But I don't think there's a way that I can accurately express the way standing on the beach and just regarding the ocean makes me feel. It's one of the most overwhelming and yet satisfying feelings that I think ever happens to me. Yeah, the desert just sucks. <laughs> the desert's just a dick. But... With Jaws, to go back for just a second, it did inspire, unfortunately, some imitators and some sequels of its own, mostly to diminishing returns. And I think about Tremors as sort of ushering in the era of that new kind of all of these films to come after, like Anaconda and Deep Blue Sea, what happened with them. Well, you don't mess with a proven formula, I guess is the thing. It's definitely Shades of Jaws and Robert Shaw when the worms get Victor Wong. You can see one-to-one -one correlations with that. Yeah, absolutely. Even Trimmer's poster is clearly indebted to Jaws. But the thing you mentioned, it makes me think now, is this one of the most unlikely franchises to be spawned? Back in 1990, I don't think it was a sure thing, but... With that sort of direct-to-video, that was a boon for a film like this and for those people who wanted to continue to try to make money off of it. I've not seen any of the sequels or the television show, have you? I have not. Kevin Bacon was involved in trying to get the new version of this series just a couple of years ago happening, but that didn't work out. But fingers crossed, it could still. I feel differently, I think, about this one for some reason. Almost like I'm protective of the first one. It's the scrappy upstart, and I don't want to sully that. Which makes no sense at all, because the Jaws thing that you're talking about, <laughs> I've seen all of the Jaws sequels and even Jaws ripoffs, like Cruel Jaws. And maybe it's just that I think Jaws is big enough to take care of itself. It doesn't need someone to look out for it. That's true. 
I think a partial benefit to maybe getting a series out of this done the right way, because we do like the characters and we want to see what happens with the characters in this world less than the graboids, for example. And I think, though, in those subsequent films, they did do a lot more world building with that. But that's not why we really come to Tremors in the first place. Well, now that we're talking about it, let's talk a little bit about the one character that has gone through all of that, the one that we would have been able to follow, and that's Michael Gross's character, Bert. Bert is super interesting to me. He proves that, at one point, it's just a matter of firepower. There are lots of guns here. Do you think this is the NRA's favorite movie? Or at least with the isolation and the guns, is this the most libertarian movie you've ever seen? Well, my dad likes it, so I guess (laughs) the answer is yes. I have to say, though, that one of my very favorite sequences is the extended gun battle because it's like the fist fight and they live. You think it's going to be over, but it's not. And if we look to Chekhov, you cannot have that many guns in a room (laughs) and not use them. Yeah, I definitely feel differently about Bert than I might about a similar character in a different movie. And I think it boils down to what Michael Gross says about it. He's played him multiple times. He probably knows the character better than anybody. He says Bert is an organization of one. He is not a follower. He's completely apolitical. And he goes to great pains to point out that the guns are never turned on another human being. There's a clear adversarial line here. Humans fight monsters and monsters fight humans, and that's it. And we see a little bit of that connection when the group is together in the store after things have started to go down. And Nancy says, you are just loving this, aren't you? And Heather says, well, let's not get personal here. And then they don't. They keep it at a level of let's all work together for each other. Yeah, because you have to come up with a plan. And what do you do when the creature is coming up with a plan faster than you are? This is what makes this movie so propulsive. It's what puts you on a clock. It's like a chess game that you play, at least partially, with elephant guns. I think that's why it works so well with these creatures. Everything comes down to instinct, and it means the townspeople have to go back to survival mode. Which is, again, why these people are so likable, because everything is so clear and close to the bone. They have all of the instincts they need to survive. And the clock has shown itself already, going back once again to Edgar's death. You can't survive without food and water indefinitely, so they have to keep moving. Not just keep moving, but I think the most interesting thing here is keep upping the ante, because every move by either side is met by an escalation from the other side. The perfect example is that modified tractor versus the sinkhole trap that the worms make. I love this feeling that I'm left with by the time the credits roll that the humans are only just smarter in this particular case. And that may just be because of luck and geography. In a different set of circumstances and given more time, the worms win and that is scary. I think maybe not necessarily that they're just slightly smarter than the Graboids, but they have a couple more tools and there are just a few more of them. Yeah, it's such a smart structure. Time is of the essence. It forces the hand of both sides. And it's really a fantastic example of streamlined genre filmmaking. There's no fat. I would say distilled is probably the best word to describe it. And so the lesson that we should take from any good creature feature It takes ingenuity and luck and, most especially, humanity to win the day, to fight monsters. 
All the prep in the world cannot protect you from the previously unimaginable. I do like, though, that we have to think eventually nature still will win. That next road crew is coming, so that just means that the next invasion is right around the corner. Keep watching the sand. I like that you bring that up, actually, because that's one of my favorite things about this one. I like the standalone nature of this one. I know that several sequels followed, but I am grateful that that wasn't built into this. It was a finite threat, so you can enjoy the feeling of success. There's no the end, or is it? And I think, again, it upends a little bit very nicely, the way that our viewing habits have corrupted us, because what we usually just know in our hearts, the structure of these always suggests that there's either going to be a much larger boss worm or a queen or something like that. You're right. That's my 2000 cynicism <laughs> trickling in there. Well, did you have fun watching that one? I always have fun watching that one. And I'm glad we picked it for this. Yeah, you couldn't get farther away from film noir than this one as a choice to counteract our earlier programming this month. And kick off our summer fun times, which... Do we have summer fun times coming up, or is it all dark and... We have Rushmore and My Brilliant Career coming up. Ooh, those are fun. Well, how about a recommendation? What would you suggest people go to next? Well, I didn't choose your sister's favorite film, Big Business, also with Fred (laughs) Ward. (laughs) I chose something that I feel pretty comfortable in saying is completely or very underseen. And I was surprised it's on HBO Max right now. It's got connections to Tremors, came out the following year, stars Fred Ward, and was also produced by Gail Ann Hurd. And that is Cast a Deadly Spell from 1991, directed by Martin Campbell with Fred Ward, Julianne Moore, David Warner, and Clancy Brown. I love that cast. It's pretty darn good. Have you not seen this one? No. You better check it out. Now, Fred Ward plays H. Philip Lovecraft, a private detective in 1948 L.A., but in this L.A., magic is real, and there are monsters and zombies roaming around. And Lovecraft is hired to find the chauffeur of a wealthy man who made off with the Necronomicon, and he has just 48 hours to find it, all on 40 bucks a day plus expenses. How about your recommendation? I went with another of my favorite creature features from that time period, and that is Arachnophobia, also from 1990. Yeah, you put dibs on it, so (laughs) I had to pick something else. That's directed by Frank Marshall, and it stars Jeff Daniels, Julian Sands, Harley Jane Kozak, and John Goodman. It is about a newly discovered species of Venezuelan spider that is then transported to a California town where it proliferates and begins killing the citizenry. This one fits right in that classic mold of invasive species comes to town and includes everything from insects to aliens in that legacy. And it does all of that really well and is spooky and fun, but I'll tell you why I really recommend this. There is an air of weirdo suburban darkness here, just under the surface, that is personified by John Goodman's character, Delbert McClintock. His presence in this movie pushes this over into that same universe as one of your favorites, The Burbs. Yeah. And maybe even closer to one of my all-time favorite movies, Neighbors, with John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd. I think you nailed it. 
I love this character. I would watch this movie over and over again just for the little bits that he's in it. I would really love to see an origin story on Delbert McClintock. And then there's also that name that clearly has to be a reference to one of Texas's favorite musical sons, Delbert McClinton. It's like rolling a seven every time I roll the dice. <laughs> the Did you enjoy that? Delbert McClinton that I've ever heard. Thank you. You should be on Austin City Limits. Thank you. So once again, that's two great recommendations, Cast a Deadly Spell and Arachnophobia. And that brings us to the end of episode 159. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter at Lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Andy Wolverton, Michael Cannon, Beryl La Boutenuse, The Fine Gentleman at Fuds on Film, Keith Rich, Mike Scharf, Spencer Seams, and Richard Gartner. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. You can find our show on Audible, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us there. A special thanks this time to Money Steve for the nice iTunes review. We appreciate that very much. And also to the nice anonymous person that recently left us a five-star rating. If you would like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 